Giannis Natsis leads the advocacy for better and affordable medicines at the European Public Health Alliance, also known as EFA. Before joining EFA in January of 2016, he worked at the European Parliament, the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the UN, and the private sector in Brussels and Athens. Giannis is committed to promoting transparency, accountability, and protecting the public interest in health and medicines policies. In May of 2019, Giannis was appointed to the management board of the European Medicines Agency, the EMA. He is also a board member of the European Health Forum Gastein. Giannis, as always, it's great to see you, sir. How are you? Thank you so much. It feels great to be to be virtually seeing you again and having this exchange. <laughs> it's always enjoyable speaking to you. And uh, again, I should say congratulations for your appointment to the board of the European Medicines Agency. It's uh, fantastic for you, sir. Thank you. And it's 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 getting more and more interesting, to be honest, because now with, with Brexit behind us uh, on the board and, of course, now with COVID, Although the meetings are virtual, and that's a bit annoying, but this is kind of the new norm, although we'll see how long that's going to last. Um, the meetings are more and more political, and the discussions are meaningful and substantial. The International Monetary Fund has done an estimate of what the lockdowns are costing us, and they've estimated that it's about 3% of GDP per month. That's roughly 50 billion euros a month in Italy and Spain. That's a lot of quality that we're paying for. What are your concerns at EFA and, and, and the EMA, for that matter, regarding the economic impact on public health going forward. I mean, this is a huge amount of resources that we're losing. Yes, absolutely. Both on, on the budget for public health, but also for medicines. Um, I think, well, it remains to be seen. Also, it's a matter of national um, competence. We will see what governments, which route they choose to, what path they choose to, to walk on and whether they will boost their public health policies or not. On medicines, I believe at least for 2020, on one hand, I would anticipate that perhaps some companies will delay some launches of expensive medicines. Some others, um, I read uh, recently that, for instance, Poland said that until the end of the summer, if I'm not mistaken, they're not going to reimburse any new drugs. Wow. So that perhaps that gives us kind of a glimpse of the future. It's clear that, as you said, uh, several governments are going to be under tremendous Pressure. So I don't know which EU member state will be able to deal with Zolgensmas, for instance, coming their way. Yeah. Um, and the same applies to cancer. And that's why I think that now as, as COVID, uh, the, the, the dust from this incredible storm starts to settle, perhaps temporarily, the issues of the high prices, the affordability, they're going to be on the headlines again um, across uh, EU capitals. Um, therefore, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to go in the coming months and obviously well into the next year. And if we look at the demographic issues around Europe, even before the pandemic hit, cancer was estimated to overtake cardiovascular disease for the highest mortality rate somewhere around 2050, 2060, as with the over 80 population would be approaching 20% of the European demographic makeup. And this is something that we're particularly concerned about because that's where we see a lot of the cutting edge research coming. But also, as you mentioned, you know, CAR-T is very effective, but it's also quite expensive, but it also removes a lot of overheads and bone marrow transplants, et cetera. But Europe was losing out on a lot of these therapies already before the pandemic. Yes, um, I think, I mean, the commission before COVID rightly prioritized um, cancer. We saw very high profile events. Um, the, the beating cancer action plan of the European Commission, I think it's going to be still very high on the agenda because if I'm not mistaken, the health commissioner 
made it clear from the beginning that she would focus on on a limited number of, of topics and cancer would be and I think will remain one of the key priorities. Now, in, uh, in the post-COVID world, I think the list of topics because of COVID, of COVID keeps getting longer. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying that the, 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 the beating cancer plan will be forgotten or part, um, but I don't know how and if it will be as politically uh, important as it was before um, COVID. Um, of course, again, the issue um, with, with cancer, with, well, specifically you're referring to CAR-Ts, I'm particularly intrigued by some experiments, I would say, going on in, 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 in Italy, in Spain, with hospitals producing their own CAR-Ts. But there I have a lot of questions in, in terms of the, the, the safety profile of those products. So I don't, I'm intrigued indeed, but I want to be a bit careful uh, and, and, and I want to be educated more on these initiatives, which I think have... Um, perhaps have uh, potential. Now, on the on the CARTIs, for instance, in Italy, yes, uh, especially with the previous leadership team at the Italian Medicines Agency at IFA, you, you remember there were also uh, plans announced to fund these um, initiatives of the of the hospitals compounding and producing um, CARTIs, uh, but at the same time. The Italian government did reach agreements with the pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not saying that those initiatives are mutually exclusive with um, companies uh, marketing their own uh, CAR-Ts in the market. But we don't have that much evidence so far in Europe as to how these financial agreements, these financial arrangements work and, and, and if, you know, if, they, if they fit the system in a way. I think it's a bit early um, in the process to 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 draw conclusions about that. Yeah, and as you may be aware, we've been doing a lot of work on CAR T therapies for several European governments mm-hmm. doing comparative effectiveness assessments. So we're knee deep and mile wide in CAR T data. <laughs> yeah. The questions we have around the hospital exempted products. I actually went to the International CAR T conference in Paris last year, 2018 and saw a presentation of a hospital exempted product from one of the universities. I'm not going to mention the name of it. Your safety question is is really key. You know, they had a lot of Category 5 adverse events in one of their hospital-exempted trials. Now, this put a company out of business that had this problem, and that's how Celgene was able to pick up the product from a failed Phase 2, the rocket trial, uh, that had gone bad, and actually it had a lot of problems. But yet, what you see here with this hospital-exempted trial, you can't find the evidence. I've tried to get that PowerPoint to you know look at the data. I've tried to get the data to do comparative effectiveness assessments related to the products we're doing now. You can't find it. I'm interested in the data. It's a concern to me, and it's a concern to, it should be a concern to everybody because there needs to be some accountability if, there, if Europe wants to go down that road and potentially impact the commercial market. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I subscribe to every word you're saying, actually. I, I agree fully. And, and this is why I think this is still a bit uncharted territory. I mean, for me, I also have questions uh, when it comes to CAR-T. I have questions regarding the, the patentability of these processes who owns the data? Um, and, and there, I think also we see what's happening in CARTIs in China, where the regulatory environment keeps changing every six months in a way. And that creates... It's the wild, wild east. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Exactly. So that, that kind of, 
yeah, that summarizes that it's still a bit early to draw conclusions, and this is why I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna vouch for these for these experiments that we see in in these hospitals in Barcelona and in Rome and elsewhere. And uh, so I have I, I have my I shared I shared your questions on that. The bigger concern I have about it, though, is if you look at the innovation, we've tracked biotech acquisitions, as you know, for the last five years. We see 80% last year of mature biotech was acquired in the United States, including European biotech. The fact is it's hard to bring mature products to market in Europe and to grab that late stage value creation. You know, there were 244 CAR-T trials in China last year. There were 140 CAR-T trials in the United States. There were 39 in Europe. Robert Madeline said this very well in a podcast I had with him a couple weeks ago. Without Europe capturing that 25% of international GDP, we will not be able to sustain our lifestyle. And part of that is bringing to market a lot of European technology. And right now, we're just not doing that. Yeah, these are valid questions. At the same time, I believe, you know, I recently had a very interesting conversation with a venture capitalist um, of a big uh, fund. And he was telling me that for them, if, and they even specialize in rare diseases, um, and he was saying that if, we see that the prices suggested by um, uh, a company or uh, several companies, they're unsustainable or they are excessive. We're not even going to invest in those. Yeah. So why am I... And I was, I was very surprised to hear that from him. Um, and his explanation was that because we know that this is not sustainable, this is not going to fly politically. And Europe is still a very, very important market. It's, it's the second most important market. So... I think it is high time, you know, and we've had this discussion before over the past, I would say, five years. It is high time we talked about a new social contract between pharma, society and patients. And especially now also with, with, with COVID, I would like to hear some progressive pharma voices coming forward with new ideas and, and really breaking um, uh, ranks with the official, let's say, pharma trade association line. How do we make sure that this system this this new social contract guarantees on one hand innovation and of course the private sector has a very important role to play but at the same time on the other hand we need to make sure that healthcare systems in europe especially now in the post covid-19 world can manage those prices because honestly nobody will be able to afford those prices and you know we've had this discussion starting before covid-19 imagine how these discussions are going to be now um, uh, after COVID-19. So this is why for me that the problems and the issues are not going to go away. Um, and your uh, points um, around the competitiveness of, of Europe and how attractive uh, the European market um, is, but also not only for, for launching your new products, but also for um, investing in, in R&D. These are very valid questions. And this is what I expect from the European Commission now with the pharmaceutical strategy, whenever it comes out, <laughs> um, uh, yes, probably by late 2020 or, or early um, 2021, that we will have this balance. Or maybe not until the next commission. <laughs> yes, you, it's, a, it's a fair point because my concern is, you know, 2020 is more or less gone because also of COVID. And then we're going to be well into 2021 before we see anything concrete and then how many years are left until the end of the, the current mandate exactly so three years until you start restructuring the next mandate yeah precisely know. so i'm a bit concerned and and look at what's going on with the 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 legacy of the previous commission from the health um file well yes there was the spc manufacturing waiver on one hand and that was completed 
The other file, very important one, the HDA regulation. Where are we? Exactly. We will see. We will see if if that is still around and how uh, high on the priority list um, it is, especially in, in the post COVID nineteen world. We had a very interesting webinar last week on cancer where we had MEP Peter Lise as well as yes. Jan van Lent from Medev. And what yeah. was interesting is there was between industry as well as MEP Lise as well as Ibrahim van Lent from the payer side, there was complete agreement that the fact that the German presidency does not want to address the unified HTA is a real problem. I was really heartened to hear that Peter Lise and everyone on the webinar said, yes, we really want to go after this. So I am hopeful that those discussions will start up again, particularly on the back of the pandemic. I mean, this is something that absolutely is a, it's a quick win for everybody and it would absolutely help <laughs> across the board, I think. And it is important, if I may add, also for us at IFA, it is important to show that, especially now with all of the discussions going on um, in light of COVID-19, about the health competence of the European Union. I mean, it is important to conclude those files. I mean, there's, there was the SPC manufacturing waiver there, the HTA file should not be forgotten indefinitely. And even if the Germans do not want to prioritize it, because I think it's going to be a rather special presidency, you know, with virtual meetings, no translation, limited number of meetings, etc. There are the, the following presidencies that can still sure. uh, pick it up and, and keep it on the, on the agenda. It's a question also how credible then it will be that, especially now that the discussions that we hope at IFA, that there will be a move towards more power of the EU over health policy and, and more competence um, uh, in this direction, um, it is important to show that we can get things done. And the HTA file is one of them. And I think it's where industry, patient groups, you know, I think it's one where there's broad agreement yes. you know, with regulate. I think it's just one where everyone agrees, hey, this is be a good thing if we can make it work. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree with yes. you. Well, I'd like to get back on one of the points about innovation capacity in mm -hmm. Europe and, and some of the things you're talking about, about, you know, Europe needs to play a more central role. If we look at the one leading European vaccine candidate, which is out of Oxford University, mm -hmm. which has its now its partner AstraZeneca in the UK, mm -hmm. one of the big questions that I've had and, and many people in the industry is, okay, where's the manufacturing capacity? Because right now the lines are all at full capacity with handling what they have now. And if you look at who stepped in with the $1.5 billion to fund manufacturing, it was not Europe, it was the US government. Regardless of pricing, vaccines are an expensive business and there's risk. And not, not, not a very profitable business either. No, and particularly a low-margin business like vaccines where you have a 50-50 shot of failure and you only have five or six shots on goal coming. You know, it takes five years to build a fill and production line for vaccines. You're on the European Medicines Agency board. You're at EFA. You're on the board of European Health Forum Gastein. Why didn't Europe pony up that money and take the lead? Why did the U.S. have to come in? Yes, it's, um, it's true. I mean, the... At the same time, the, the COVID-19 shows that innovation, there is a big chunk of, of public funds going into innovation. But what worries me is that in recent weeks and months, we've seen considerable chunks of public money being dedicated, but there is no transparency, there is no clarity, um, there is a disconnect between research priorities and this public funding. Um, the, the European Commission seems to be not very well coordinated and not very well coordinating and, and connecting the dots between even, let's say, DG Santé and DG RTD. Um, so on one hand, I'm encouraged to see, and I think this is the, if you ask the average person on the street, they will tell you that 
the public, especially now with COVID-19, has a role to play and should have a role to play. And, and I would like all of these, because I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of teaming up with the pharmaceutical companies, and I think they are part of the solution, especially now in, in COVID-19. But I would expect the public, be it the national governments or the European Commission, they act more as a wise investor rather than a passive donor. Sure. So I would like to see governments... Yes, sharing the risk for sure, but then making sure that they flex their muscles in order to make sure that there is some sort of a public return on this significant investment. And, and um, you know, we were all shocked by the, the recent statement by the Sanofi CEO about granting um, access to any eventual uh, product first to the US market. But that gave us a bit of a, a glimpse of the standard practice, because you're right. One of the provisions of BARDA is that once there is BARDA there, and practically the US military, obviously, then the, the uh, US market will be the first one to be served. So to that, the EU, uh, both on the, on the Brussels level, but also on the national level, needs to come up with a coordinated response. And we need to start from the basics, I'm afraid, in Europe, because We've been trying, and, and uh, as advocates, we've been trying to really encourage the dialogue and to foster the dialogue between ministries of research and innovation and ministries of health and make sure that this is not a chaotic right. <laughs> um, uh, environment, but rather a, a, an easy uh, and seamless uh, symbiosis. And this is, I, I hope, that this will be further accelerated by the COVID-19 developments. We saw the pledging conference, the high-profile pledging conference of the European Commission a few weeks back. But again, what is the governance setup? Where is the transparency? Where is the public accountability? What, are the, what is the priority setting? That's where we need to really step up our game in Europe. Yes. And again, I think if we look at pricing in particular, I spent the better part of the last six months before the pandemic working on the legislative packages in the U.S. Congress, both the administration and the U.S. Congress were putting in bills and legislative packages to try and force Europeans to raise prices because there's a perception in the United States from the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is on, on average about three times as expensive. And this may become a trade issue. Do you agree that there needs to be at least a closer pricing or at least better coordination between the U.S. and Europe? This could end up flaring up. You're right. I don't think that it's a question of having a convergence. Of, I mean, a convergence of prices would be um, a very dangerous scenario for for Europe, obviously, between the two sides of the of the Atlantic. But um, I mean, there are clear differences, and we both know them. I mean, the U.S. is a market here. Luckily, for the time being, in Europe, we're still. <laughs> a system uh, where, where solidarity is, is, uh, is uh, the guiding, let's say, light and principle. Um, I think the pressure, the, the pricing debate, of course, it will also depend on the outcome of the U.S. elections um, later this year. Um, yes, trading, going also back because I didn't answer your, your previous question on the manufacturing capacity. I think uh, we need to start, as you said, we need to start planning now what do we do in case we do get a vaccine and that is a big question mark a vaccine or vaccines and what if we don't get a vaccine or vaccines and 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 i think also at the at the ema um it is very important that we make sure that you know speed is of essence but we cannot sacrifice the safety and the quality of any eventual products be they uh, therapeutic treatments or a vaccine or vaccines we need to be very 
cautious and we need to guarantee because at the end of the day, if we do get to a point where we have a vaccine, this will be potentially given to billions of healthy people. We do not want to uh, give ammunition to anti-vaxxers and we do not want to um, uh, sacrifice people's uh, health. And of course, to me, it's a big question mark if we will get to, to a vaccine and what will we define as a vaccine and whether it will be very similar to the annual, let's say, the seasonal flu job or something more than that. These are all um, question marks at this, at this stage. Going back to the issue of the manufacturing capacity, uh, I think we see you know, subsidies, we see state aid already in several EU member states uh, going in this direction. I'm happy with that, but we need to make sure again that some conditionalities are, are attached to that. And it cannot simply be, and I think this will be a, a big challenge for numerous government, governments, especially in the south of Europe. It cannot simply be, oh, you know, I'm opening up a factory, which we've seen also in, in other uh, circumstances. I'm just opening up a factory and that's enough. And this is your, let's say, uh, return on your investment. It has to go beyond that. And, it, and that's what I'm saying that the public should act as a, as a wise investor. And that, that is not up to the companies. <laughs> no. that, is up to the, that is up to the public authorities. The companies, again, they have a very important role to play in, in vaccines and in manufacturing. I expect that in this situation regarding COVID-19 specifically, perhaps we will have a, a GSK vaccine being manufactured also in a, in a Sanofi manufacturing site, obviously, because yeah. nobody can do it alone. Um, but again, it is... How do we get, this is my question, and of course, we, the two of us, we focus on Europe and, and, on, and, and you more also on the US, but the question is also, how do we guarantee that there is some sort of um, an ethical framework to manage the scarcity of resources, and how do we um, make sure that there is some sort of a fair uh, allocation and distribution of these, of these products? I'm, I'm talking about specifically about COVID-19. And then, of course, Dwayne, for me, the question afterwards is, because, for instance, for, for, for COVID-19, I think, you know, this, this spirit of openness, sharing of knowledge, open science, I hope that this will become the new normal, let's say. This will be the, the positive change that remains in the post-COVID-19 uh, reality. And we move away from the silos, the secrecy, the competition. Um, I think this will be uh, beneficial for, for science, innovation, both for companies and obviously for, for society. But at the same time, we need to make sure that, you know, if we get certain things as the COVID-19 induced exceptionalism, why not expand it also to other vaccines? A good solution that is presented by COVID-19 could also be potentially scaled up for AMR. I do think that's possible because the big challenges for AMR have been the same challenges for vaccines, which is high risk. Uh, low acceptability from the public standpoint, as well as a large upfront investment and low margins. So we're dealing with similar problems. So if there's a public-private partnership that I think comes out of COVID-19, and you're seeing that with the U.S. government ponying up a couple billion dollars for manufacturing, and that will go, if it's not Oxford, it'll go to the Pfizer drug with the German company, or it'll go to Moderna or whomever. It'll go wherever we need to get the capacity. You and I were actually, when we were at Gastein, and I was moderating one of the sessions, and you asked a great question about AMR to the chief economist from AstraZeneca who was on stage. And I remember I turned to him and said, yeah, you guys just put out a multi-spectrum 
antibiotic. How's it doing? And he's like, well, I'm not going to get into specific numbers, but I'll tell you, in Scotland, I've sold three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that basically defined the problem, I think. Yeah, and it's it's true that there are similarities and these, uh, the um, I think, thanks to COVID-19 or in light of COVID-19, rather, we will see a consolidation of this private-public partnership approach. Um, I'm encouraged that in the in the in in COVID nineteen uh, there were early on you remember by the with the IFPMA the impressive IFPMA um, press conference I've lost track of time when was it in in late March early April there were some very progressive and encouraging and heartening I would say statements by pharma uh, leaders about making sure that the products are available accessible affordable of course I'm. A bit cautious, and I'm encouraged by these statements, but I want to see what those mean in practice. And obviously, those uh, wonderful and very welcome uh, statements should not be left up to the interpretation of the companies. Um, and this is where I go back to saying that governments, especially now with all these huge chunks of money, state subsidies, sub, uh, whatever they, they offer, um, they should flex their muscle and they should use, they, re- they should realize and use their leverage. Um, and the same should apply uh, because now you, we hear these these words have become so mainstream. Huh? Who would have thought, going back five, six years ago, that the words accessible, affordable, available have become so mainstream? Of course, let's see uh, what they mean in practice, especially when the spotlight uh, fades away a bit from, from COVID-19. Um, and this is where I was saying before that I'm I'm still waiting to hear from some visionary uh, uh, pharma heads uh, what this will mean in practice. Um, And at the same time, I'm encouraged by the fact that Andrew Whitty, uh, well, now he was with an American insurance company, but prior to that, we both (laughs) know that he was the the CEO of of, um, uh, GSK. I'm encouraged that he's joining the WHO efforts. Um, that is, I think, a, a promising sign. But we need more uh, visionaries like him, let's say. Yes, but, I, but then I think on the other side of the coin, when you have politicians that have already been coming out threatening to compulsory license anything that comes out re- reflexively without any discussion, and you've seen Chile pass laws, you've seen Canada pass laws, and again, whilst I'm happy with Peter Lise that he wants to push for a unified HTA, the fact that he's been coming out and already saying he wants to issue compulsory licensing for remdesivir, a drug that is good-ish, cuts three days off the disease, great, but it's certainly not a cure. I don't know if that's necessarily the most constructive approach to this problem. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I was surprised myself that Peter Leeson, whom we've known very well for many years, came out with such strong statements. But Dwayne, I think those statements, pro, pro compulsory licensing, that is. Honestly speaking, I think this shows that pharma's reputation in Europe in the past five, six years has been severely tarnished. I mean, we have a sector who has been um, accused of overcharging for cancer, dropping the ball on AMR. And there you get even Peter Lisa, I would say, coming out publicly, making these very strong statements pro compulsory licensing. And we both know what CL means for the um, for the pharma world but uh, i'm sorry but it shows that you know the 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 sector has caused a lot of self-inflicted let's say um reputation problems um and this is where we are today i I have i'm telling you openly i was i was surprised really myself and i don't understand exactly what his motivation and 
uh, what his motivation is behind behind these uh, statements. At the end of the day, CL is part of the same rule book. Uh, to me, it is not uh, such an extremist measure. It's part of the the same uh, rules that uh, offer um, IP uh, predictability to the to the sector. Uh, so I don't uh, I don't view it as a, as a, as a radical nuclear option, not at all. Um, and with with COVID nineteen, I think it was clear that governments didn't want to play uh, play games. Um, and uh, you mentioned Gilead. I was honestly I was shocked by uh, the the stupid move of of going to the FDA and asking for <laughs> uh, uh, orphan drug OMP. Yes, and then of course they took it back because I think there again with the Sanofi CEO statement or this Gilead um, move. Um, I think we get glimpses of the discussions that are happening inside uh, pharma th- these days. Luckily, uh, the EMA obviously took a clear stance uh, immediately saying that this would never happen in, in Europe, although the FDA did grant that designation. But again, these are, these are worrisome um, remarks and, and, and glimpses of what's happening inside the companies. And I think even Germany amended its legislation to facilitate or to enable uh, the issue of a compulsory licensing as as a warning shot to pharma saying, you know, you have a social contract, especially with COVID-19. The COVID-19 reminds us what pharma is here for and what it, pharma should be here for. And this is why I keep referring to the importance of having a new social contract um, and having some positive permanent change after uh, COVID-19. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you would be surprised but I published an article early on in the, in the COVID-19 um, uh, timeline, let's say, in Europe, where I, I said myself that this is not the time for confrontation. And I, I do stand, and this is coming from me, <laughs> and I do stand <laughs> firmly by it. This is not the time for confrontation. But at the same time, we, we expect and pharma should realize that it has a clear social responsibility. Yeah. Otherwise, you get statements in favor of compulsory licensing, etc. I do think pharma is going to be a, an honest broker in this situation. There's no question there. I mean, it's not in their best interest not to, first off. My concern around people who are throwing around the compulsory licensing canards right now a little bit in, in the context of COVID-19, the, the problem there is you're dealing with assets, particularly vaccines, where adverse events are possible. No one has successfully created a coronavirus vaccine, not for AIDS, not for SARS, not for MERS. It's hard. It's risky. And the fact is this disease, if you look at the data, even out of a place that's been quite decimated by the disease, New York, if you are under 30 years old, your risk of getting the disease is literally zero in 100,000. It is going to be very, very difficult to produce a vaccine with a lower adverse event profile than zero in 100,000. That is not going to be easy, particularly in this clinical area. So my concern is when you make an aggressive move as you know MEP Lise did around remdesivir, regardless of if they've made it an OMP or not, the cost of these hostile discussions around compulsory licensing are a lack of biotech development and commercialization in Europe. It is a 50% drop in orphan drugs in Europe over the last four years. You've literally had a 50% drop in both indications and designations. And I'm very heartened by what you're saying, Nanis. It's it's good to hear. How do we then collectively do a better job? Because I think you and I can find consensus. How do we progress better? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And, and it's really forward looking. I think um, we need we need to sit down together in, in Europe and have um, a discussion uh, around fair pricing. And then and, and especially 
um, in light of the WHO Fair Pricing Forum, if this is still going to take place next year somewhere, um, I think it was in, in Brazil. I think we need to have discussions around transparency. I mean, there is still the legacy um, of the WHA resolution of last year. This year, the WHA resolution, with the exception of, of the US, you know, you have calls, global calls for the um, uh, COVID-19 products to be um, uh, global public goods. Um, we need to take into account, of course, the COVID-19 um, precedent changes the landscape. So we need to sit down together and discuss um, and not go back to the old norm of, of um, let's say, cut fights, um, especially now following uh, COVID-19. Um, we need a fair pricing forum in Europe. We need to sit down and discuss and see um, holistically what can be done uh, towards, in my opinion, you know, more transparency in the system uh, to address the different imbalances that we have in the system, possible critical review of the orphan drugs um, legislation. Of course, it can go in many different ways. It's, it's, and we need, we need to definitely safeguard the spirit of the, of the regulation and the, of the legislation because it has delivered um, some fantastic innovation and we need to make sure that that uh, remains so. Um, and we also need to look at the investment landscape. I agree with you. I mean, this right. is, is my hope also with these um, investments around COVID-19 because I think it's the first time that you have, uh, for instance, Macron going on national TV and saying, I'm pledging $5 billion in medical R&D. But then we don't really know what, where, who, uh, what kind of safeguards, etc. But this, I'm, I mean, I'm, I have to say, we've tried in the past to, to, to connect the dots. We haven't been very successful. You know how national administration is very fragmented in Europe and obviously you have 27 different um, member states. Um, so it's, this is, I would say, a work in progress. But the, the Fair Pricing Forum um, is, I think, an idea where also the Commission could play a role. Um, we are still in the process. We still don't know what the Commission will prioritize for the remaining of its mandate. Um, again, as I, as I said, the way I read the situation, the list of issues keeps getting longer and the time keeps getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, we need to see what we should really focus on and how we can be strategic in Europe so that we do both things. It's, it's, for me, it's important that we incorporate the access to medicines angle in different um, uh, pieces. You know, for instance, in the trade policy, in competition, in industrial policy, in health policy, this is how we're going to be um, successful. And now, for instance, you see there is a lot of talk around medicine shortages, around reshoring, decoupling from China. <laughs> but at the same time, you have the health commissioner saying we need to boost uh, manufacturing capacity in Europe. And a few days later, uh, Phil Hogan, the trade commissioner, saying, yes, it is a very important topic. But at the same time, we need to be mindful of our relations, trade relations with China and India. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, it's, it cannot, you cannot have the switch that easily overnight. And also, I wonder if companies who have been, uh, you know, American companies, European companies who have been investing heavily and massively and building relations with the Chinese authorities in recent decades, how willing they would be to, <laughs> to switch overnight? These are all very important question marks. I'd like to touch on one thing um, that came out over the past couple of days, and this was this NGO report about the IMI. Yeah. If you look at 
the industry as a whole over the last 10 years. The industry spent $750 billion on partnerships and partnering with biotechs globally around the world to develop products. The industry spends billions and billions of dollars working with biotechs and innovative biotechs and governments and partnerships in Europe. Do you feel that that report was fair in its criticisms about uh, the IMI? Yeah, uh, I think the report echoes concerns which have been expressed in recent years, also during the the midterm review of the IMI. Um, There have been um, similar concerns expressed also by the parliament um, throughout the past years. Now, looking forward, um, and also in terms of the successor of the IMI, I think it's called IHI, the the Innovative Health Initiative, or it doesn't have a name yet. Um, For me, it's all a question of making sure, getting it right in terms of the governance, making sure that it's more inclusive, making sure that it's more transparent, making sure, I'm not saying that the IMI did everything wrong, but I'm saying that we, we should learn from the mistakes of the IMI, and I think DGRTD, the European Commission, uh, hear these calls and will move in a direction of at least getting the the governance set up right, Um, making sure that independent civil society is there, um, patient voice is there, making sure that we move away from the the, the FBI European Commission um, governing board, which was there before. Um, It's not only the the parliament or this, this report that came out that have Uh, voiced uh, concerns about it. It's also a lot of member states also who have, at least I've had off-the-record discussions with quite a few government government officials from the different EU capitals who have said that the IMI's agenda seems to be, I wouldn't say hijacked, but uh, seems to be disproportionately serving the, the industrial agenda, the industry's agenda. So now looking forward, there is space for improvement. There is space for more accountability and transparency. Why shouldn't we move in this direction? I think this will increase the trust in the system on all sides. So I would expect that the commission will be smart enough and make sure that they do take these calls on board. Um, so it's not so much, you know, these, these, the criticism, the critique uh, in, this, in this report, I think it's the first time that we get such um, a comprehensive uh, critique, but it's, is it really something new? Not so much, because I've, I've read similar um, uh, issues um, in different reports, as I said, from uh, um, the European Parliament and others over the years. It, it did seem a bit to me, as someone who's on the outside of this, I mean, I, I'm involved in a couple IMI projects. What I found interesting was the idea that real-world evidence itself is just a, sort of a canard to lower evidence, which you know, I find really quite absurd, patently absurd, given the fact that this is seen by most of the payers and most of the governments of which we're working as a key to making sure that we're delivering good value and actual new medicines. And this is actually the key piece that's currently missing. Platforms around data and data access, if you look at the Eden platform, the Odyssey platform, I mean, this is a potential way to put data together to verify and solve a lot of the problems we were discussing earlier about pricing and effectiveness. I don't want to say it was a hatchet job, but it just seemed pretty one-sided. I think that's my concern. It just seemed really quite biased against the IMI, which, you know, again, if the companies are working together to get cancer drugs more effectively through to market, cardiovascular disease now, it's a terrible place to do research because statins are basically free and cancer is going to be the number one disease burden area of Europe in 20 or 30 years. So I, th- I think it makes sense. However, I can understand some criticisms. Do you think the report was a bit biased, I guess? 
well, I mean, it, the report serves a purpose that oftentimes also, uh, I think the, the authors, they did their best to collect information from the inside and they tried to understand how this machine works um, as, as, as well as possible as, uh, to the extent that they could. So obviously the, the, the report is trying to make several points. Now, uh, I guess, yes, there is, there is a, a bit of bias in trying to articulate the, and to get the message um, across. But uh, some of the main um, points uh, raised there, I think that are very, they're pretty valid. Um, and I'm hoping really that the commission looking forward will take this on board. And I, I do believe that it's not nuclear science it's, and it's nothing revolutionary. I think the commission can, and I think also the commission internally, they do acknowledge that nothing, not everything was done perfectly sure. <laughs> when it came to IMI 1 and 2. So, uh, yes, be it biased or non-biased, uh, we can have a discussion around it and we can also, you know, I'm sure... People who are on the inside of the IMI and who have uh, uh, taken part in projects, I'm sure they will disagree uh, with certain elements of the of the of this of this uh, study. Um, but that is not to dismiss it overall and then dismiss its recommendations, especially when it comes to looking forward. You know, it's um, no, of course. I mean, it's an ongoing discussion because it has been for. I've, I've, I'm not an expert on the IMI myself, and I, I haven't followed it very, very closely. But to me, it has been a bit puzzling that sometimes it seems that there is a disconnect between DG Sante, DG RTD. Um, there is, you know, people get lost in translation there. Um, who is calling the shots? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so these are questions where I want to have some answers. From my standpoint, one project that I think is really key right now today, if we look at it, is the Trials at Home project, which looks at diversified clinical trials using mobile technology. I mean, this is something that Europe could actually, in the context of the pandemic, really deliver some real hard results that could really fundamentally change the way we do science. And I, I think that there's some really good stuff going on there that I, I just found was overlooked, unfortunately. But yeah. one one final question for you here. Yes. What do you think the situation in Europe is going to be regarding healthcare and innovation come December 31st, 2020? Yeah. On uh, specifically, I think the access to medicines debate will be full on. Uh, I think we will have, <laughs> again, headlines, as I said, around the high prices of some uh, medicines. So the, the problems are not going to go away. Um, when it comes to the, the Brussels uh, sphere, I think uh, a lot of the files that we've been working on and waiting for, they're going to be severely delayed. And that worries me because, as we said before, time is running, um, running up and we're running out of time because it's, uh, time flies, especially when you see at the timetable of the, of the commission. Um, I'm worried about uh, issues like, for instance, the HTA file. On the other hand, I do believe that files such as the incentives review, this is not going to be forgotten. This is not going to be parked. Um, the question of this, um, of transparency and, and fair pricing, I believe it's going to come back. Um, and it's going to come back also by uh, the presidencies that will follow uh, the Germans. Um, yes, the German presidency will be important. Uh, we will see if they come up with any council conclusions um, and how much really, how much where do they set the bar for their own uh, presidency in the, in the COVID-19 context and the, the innate limitations in, uh, of this new context. And I, I don't uh, expect that the discussions are around new or, or renewed or boosted um, 
EU competence over health issues will be resolved by <laughs> the end of this year. It's all sorted, Giannis. Not at all. It's all fixed. It's not exactly, <laughs> but we will get a bit of a glimpse now with the MFF um, negotiations. Let's see if there's going to be a bigger uh, amount of money uh, put aside for the health program, if there's going to be a new health program beyond 2021. So on our issues, I think... As I said, access to medicines, affordability, accessibility are going to be super high on the agenda. That is not going to change. And the the main issues will remain uh, quite central to the debate. Giannis, it's always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.